Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Dietzel as a senior writer here at The Post. Today we're going to be talking about the longevity economy and age diversity in the workplace. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome MSNBC Morning Joe's co-anchor, Mika Brzezinski, who's also the founder of Know Your Value. Mika, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. It's great to see you here. Francis, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we're delighted. So let's start with your big news, which was in the intro. You are taking your 50 over 50 list of trailblazing women global to Europe and Asia. Why was this the right moment to take it across the world's borders? You know, women over 50 and well over 50 are experiencing a sea change. Um, and it's not just in the USA, it's across the world. And um, it, it's an incredible moment of change. It uh, now was the time for a million different reasons. Um, and I should add that we have a couple huge announcements to come uh, in the next week or so uh, connected with this. So this is just the beginning, but going global um, and 50 over 50 Europe and 50 over 50 Asia made a lot of sense after the first US list, which, um, and Forbes is really kind of like the place for lists. They have 50 most powerful, they have 40 under 40, 30 under 30. And I went to them and I said, where is the 50 over 50? And they said, you're right. Um, they know how to do these lists. They're curated beautifully. Um, and they have experience with them on the global stage. And for example, 30 under 30, the first year that they put out that list, they had a couple hundred submissions. It has now gone global and it's in multiple countries and it's an, an, a pretty impressive business venture for them as well as a very successful list. But they only had a couple hundred submissions in Francis in the US list, the inaugural list had well over 10,000 submissions of incredible women who were achieving immense success and impact well after the age of 50, at the, over the age of 60, over the age of 70, over the age of 80. And what was so funny was we experienced people who tried to nominate themselves or nominate someone who lied up about their age <laughs> because they want, they're oh like, we have, we have to say, we're extremely sorry, but you were too young for this list. They'd be like 49 and a half. So, um, but no, the time has come. And I was writing a book with my sister uh, called Comeback Careers, and it was actually advice for women who were experiencing ageism, who were feeling like they had kind of fallen off, uh, you know, and not been validated in their jobs. And hadn't found their way back in or were sort of being eased out for younger people. And I kind of saw that happening in my career, but I also saw this other thing happening. And in writing this book, Francis, which was supposed to be advice for women over 50, making that comeback, making that relaunch or trying to stay in the game, I interviewed women well over 50 who had done so. And the thing that surprised me the most was how many women I found to interview. And that's how I came up with the idea for the list, is that there were just so many incredible women who were, I'm sorry, kicking ass and taking names, and they were 65, 72, 81, and they were not even close to slowing down. So, Nika, I'm particularly intrigued, though, about the, the global interaction here. What can American women learn from the way women age and continue in their careers from other countries? 
That's exactly what we're going to find out when we do these lists, because I think it'll be very interesting. No, because each, you know, different parts of the world will have, you know, very different women coming up. But there are, I mean, if you look at Europe and in the financial sector and you look at, I mean, there are so many women who it is nothing to them to be working well into their 60s and 70s. And I think it is upon us. I think we've kind of let this happen before us without realizing this incredible change is happening. And I know that you're going to be talking about many different angles on this. There's a medical angle to this. Um, Women over 50 physiologically are more capable and more confident than any other times in their lives. And so what we're finding when we hit 50 is, I mean, I always kind of thought I wasn't going to be working. I didn't even plan my career after 50. I've interviewed countless women uh, for who were on the 50 over 50 list in Forbes and also for my Women in Charge series for Know Your Value. And they're all CEOs, VPs, they're in politics, they're artists, they're scientists. Every woman that I asked this question, did you ever imagine your life and your career after 50? Maybe you imagined your life, but did you envision your career after 50? Every woman so far has said no. They just, it was white space to them. They, they had 30, 40 in mind, but 50, no, except for the women in science. I interviewed oh, women in science. Yeah. And, and uh, in fact, last week I was talking to these two incredible women who work for Pfizer and they both knew exactly what they were going to be doing after 50. So but I just thought that, just that was back so for, for a second onto that, that point about the, the physiological changes in women. This must have been personally very eye-opening to you. What are we talking about? What what makes women so powerful in this age? Well, there's there's a um, well. I'm not a doctor, so when you have one, I think you have. Some, but we do there, have one coming. Yeah, I think you can ask about this, and I learned about this in in doing interviews myself on this topic. But there is a a lot of different things happening, you know, when we're younger, and there's a lot of hormones, and there's a lot of drama in our lives, and there's a lot going on. At over 50, a woman finds herself in 55 and 60 feeling kind of much more comfortable about herself than she ever knew before. Um, there's, there's like um, a word I won't use that she says, you know, about life. <laughs> um, it's two words, actually, um, that we just don't feel when we're younger. And I have now, I'm coming to learn that there's some science to back it up. We're, we're more comfortable. We're far less stressed out. We're good with it. The words, again, so can- I'm not allowed to use on your beautiful <laughs> streaming, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. but we feel like screw it, I guess is a way I can say it. it we're very comfortable with, eh, you know, things go wrong. So what? We don't feel that so, way in our 40s and 30s. I do want to ask you about the importance of this message. You're talking to these very powerful, accomplished women, but yeah. what's the importance of this message for young women from oh. different socioeconomic backgrounds? Uh, who probably don't imagine that they will ever be in this 50 over 50 group or even necessarily in a great trailblazing role. Oh, there! I love this question because this is actually what, this is what, I had like a moment when I started Know Your Value where mm-hmm. I knew it was something really special. And it was when this young woman, actually the runner up to the first Know Your Value bonus competition ended up getting like a college scholarship right on the spot from someone in the audience. And I could barely get the words out because I realized what Know Your Value is about is if you don't put yourself out there, 
you never know what's going to happen. And I realized in that moment when that happened, that that was it, that I had to like inspire women to just put themselves out there. It doesn't have to go perfectly, but come on, put yourself out there because you have no idea what's behind the next door unless you open it. You know what I mean? And so that was that kind of aha moment. The aha moment for 50 over 50 was this. It was when the list came out and I was sharing it with audiences and I was talking about how fun it was to put together and the young women in the room, their eyes were popping out of their heads. And I'm thinking, why are the young women in the room freaking out here? Like, um, this is not for you. And I'm sure you're supposed to be really bored right now. No, Francis, this is changing everything for younger women. Younger women, so, 50 over 50 I says to younger women, calm down, freeze your eggs if you need to, make a few mistakes, take some time off. If you have a kid that needs you and you need to take five years off, go ahead. You have got a long runway. You are no longer at the mercy of a ticking clock. You've got 40, 50, 60 years to fulfill your dreams, to reach your goals, to try new things, to build that family, to find the right guy or whatever. It's not like this mad rush. And I don't know how you felt in your 20s and 30s, but I know my kids can attest that I was always rushing. I was over, always hyperventilating. My God, if I heard this back then, I would have had a much more joyful uh, road. The runway is long and it has been paved by the women that we're going to be discovering on all of these lists. So Mick, you've had moments where you've struggled. I know you've talked about salary struggles and other things, but talk to us about the personal impact of this journey on you and learning how to represent yourself in some of those things we all struggle with. Um, you mean like in terms of equal pay and knowing my own value? Absolutely, <laughs> know your own value, absolutely. Which bad story do you want to hear? Um, I <laughs> well, mean, <laughs> tell us one, pick one. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Well, um, you know, I guess my my salary struggle is a is it's got a great message that applies to life, and that is that you have to be authentic, and you have to be ready, and you have to know your data, and you have to know how to communicate it effectively. And if you don't practice, it's not going to work. Um, and I think you know a lot of a lot of men approach things with such um, with such a well an a fifty over fifty attitude, but they have it a lot younger. They get a no, they go to the next. They get a no, they go to the next. It's like dating for them. So what? So what a no? A no for a woman is, oh my God, the end of the world. We take it personally. We wear it. We make sure we draw it on our foreheads. So, you know, if we're fired, we write that on our foreheads to make sure everyone knows we talk about it incessantly. And men in the moment are like, you know what? Screw this. I, I'm going to actually go somewhere else if you're going to fire me, and I'm going to make sure I do better and burn this place down. They just have a very aggressive and carefree attitude toward the way they approach negotiating. And I took up until the age of 40 to figure it out, and I made so many mistakes. And I ended up signing a contract where my colleagues were making 10, 15 times more than me, all of my male colleagues. And so for me, that struggle, which ended up in the book, Know Your Value, uh, because I wrote all about it, was ultimately my mistake. It was the part of the equation that I could control, and I didn't very well. 
but I learned how to. And now I'm teaching women how to do that around the country. And it's so much fun to watch that light bulb go off in their heads because in in some ways it's so simple. It's it's learning to speak and communicate effectively about yourself rather than others, which is something I wasn't able to do for a long time. And I will say that that impacted not just my professional life, but my personal life. I think knowing your value is about having successful relationships, being a successful parent, and being successful at work. But you know what? If you're not getting value back and you can't express that in any relationship, it goes badly. And so I learned a lot about myself in that process. So Mika, you've had the opportunity to to interview some incredibly influential women over the age of 50, from Kamala Harris to Angela Merkel, Nancy Pelosi, who's an octogenarian. Is ageism itself becoming old fashioned? Have we moved beyond that or are they still dealing with these issues? Uh, I, I mean, I, I've met a lot of women who are not dealing with these issues. Um, I mean, including, and, and they're dealing with other issues, but there's such a sense of confidence that these women exude that it just doesn't, you know, there are certain women that if they, they know their value, <laughs> if I may, it's not an issue because they say it's not an issue. And that's really important to command the room and to command that respect. But you can't command that respect if you don't know your value and if you don't think you should be there. And so with Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she's 82. She mm -hmm. has been Speaker of the House twice. She started politics, younger women listening, when she was like 47 after having five kids. So there's a lot of confidence in the bank with her. And that's what makes her such an effective communicator. And also, if just because I know she would, she would add this in if she was sitting right here, her religion, her being a Catholic, it's, she keeps it very close to the way she leads. And it makes her very confident. And there's just no room for any BS, ageism, sexism. There's no room for that in the room with her. And Mika, um, there's, yeah. Mika, I'd love to ask you another question because we're right in this moment now with COVID and it's hit women disproportionately hard. We're talking about women in the workplace. We know that they've been pulled back. They've struggled with juggling their own lives. What's your message now to women in this very, very delicate moment going ahead? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, that COVID has, has been brutal on, on women and work in, in, in many ways. And I think it's even, some would argue, impacted our longevity and our health. Um, there are also a lot of women who are learning to take advantage of what COVID has taught their workplaces. I was talking to 500 women in San Diego a um, couple weeks ago, about a month ago. And I said, how many of you uh, are still, they were all in, um, they were all in the finance sector. How many of you are, uh, you know, working remote? And, and they all raised their hand. And I said, how many of you like it? And they all raised their hand. <laughs> and, you know, women have found that it is now um, something that seemed so taboo, you know, asking for flexibility is now kind of part of the norm at work. Some of them go in a couple days a week. Most of them like to work remotely. And if they're good at what they do, they get more done. So I think it's a double, ed. I mean, there's, there's a good and a bad to the way COVID has impacted working women. There have been some, some absolutely terrible, 
terrible stories for women, especially at the lower end of the you know economic spectrum, who you know have really suffered or even been knocked out, have been not able to have it, handle it all and had to quit or have gotten fired. There is definitely that negative part of it. But I think actually COVID has taught a lot of corporations that there are many different ways to get things done. And women now don't feel so strange asking for what they need when they were able to do it all at home during the pandemic. So there's some interesting bright sides that I think will make a difference for years down the road. The question will be, though, how we bring her up, bring up the younger people in our businesses if you have a lot of women working remotely. So these things still have some hiccups, but I have seen that some women are actually taking advantage in a big way, staying in the game because they can do a lot at one time, uh, given the technology that that COVID has really exposed uh, for companies. So Mika, I want to ask you about a woman whose main technology has been a chainsaw, I think, um, and who's oh, yeah. juggled being a, a mother, an artist, and also a political uh, wife throughout her career, your mother, who you call Bamba, I think. Tell us about how she's been a role model for you. My mother, um, my mother always knew her value. Um, and she was, you know, a woman ahead of her time. When I was growing up, she was an artist before she was a mother or a wife. <laughs> that was her identity. And she's had a 60-year career doing monumental beautiful pieces that I think there's two in Washington, Francis, one's at the uh, Krieger Museum. It's a massive three, that piece right there, but it's in bronze, um, is in the, the driveway of the Krieger Museum. It's gorgeous. That's called Lament. That's me and her and at a, uh, the Kempner Gallery two years ago. And that was actually three years ago, right after my dad passed, we were able to get that show together. And that was a big deal for my mom because they had been married for 64 years. There is a bronze arch outside the Federal Reserve in Washington. There are pieces in Prague. There are pieces all over. And they're huge in scale. As you said, she uses a chainsaw. And she never let go of her identity as an artist, even if she was bringing up three kids and my dad was flying around the world as national security advisor, or if she had to show up at the White House, she'd show up with sawdust in her hair. And, you know, people <laughs> thought, is that the new thing? She looked gorgeous. Um, and, you know, she would put it down, deal with us, pick it up again, and get back into the moment and, and, to the, and back to her passion. And as a result, at almost 90, we just had a show last week in New York City, uh, right. unveiling this massive bench that's... Um, in the window of the New York Institute of Technology on Broadway. And there's a couple more things to come uh, in, in the New York area, um, perhaps in the next year. So the interest in her work is still booming, in fact, even more so. And it's her art that has really kept her healthy and she has had her challenges. Um, so the week I, my I dad died. Ask, yeah. yeah, I do want to ask you about that because there's a wonderful thing. I've, I've had the great fortune of meeting your brother, but Aging is a process in itself, and you've written about that too. Give us a message from your mother about how she's understood her value and what's that meant to you as you've seen her through your father's death and aging um, at home with you and the support you've given her. Yeah, we have her in Florida. She's in her own house. And um, at per first she was staying in Joe's music studio and they were like bonding as artists. But my mom has been hit so hard the, the uh, week my father passed, she had two heart attacks and was not able to go to his funeral because she was in the hospital. And as a result, 
that was like, it was hard for her to process actually just the shock of losing him. She kept forgetting because she didn't get that whole process that you go through when you lose someone the funeral. And it was a beautiful funeral. And then she got diagnosed with Parkinson's and my gosh, it's just like between those two, some dementia started setting in, but Joe told me, get her sculptures down here <laughs> like ASAP. And so we did. And that was, that took like, you wouldn't believe it. It was like a crane and like huge, I don't even know what that truck was. Paige, what was the <laughs> truck? It was like a, a big open flatbed and many of them. Um, and we had to get this 6,000 square foot studio, which is not big enough. Like that thing that I showed you lament at the Kempner gallery cannot stand up. And there's like 15 <laughs> foot ceilings. So, but we, at least we got our pieces down here. We got all of our tools down here and she really did become like light up and would find words. And again, it's her passion and her identity that's keeping her alive now and keeping her happy. And, you know, these shows are important to her. So, you know, yet the way you do things changes as your body changes. Um, there are many different ways women will live longer and healthier um, and not have as many challenges at this stage, but she's still able to live and work and enjoy her passion. And that's what it's all about. And we're a team now. Mika, that's a wonderful, wonderful way to sum up. You're a team with your mother. I'm just so thrilled you've been able to join us today and think of her as being so optimistic about the future for women coming along in this, you know, following the sort of trailblazing model she left. Mika Brzezinski, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live today. Francis, thank you. Thanks. I shall be back in a few minutes. Don't leave us. I'll be with Dr. Louise Aronson and we'll ask her about some of the questions that Mika raised about aging successfully. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everyone. I'm Chika Ojoa. Thank you for joining us in this ongoing series to talk about diversity in the workplace. Now we're going to talk about the longevity economy and how businesses and entities can better harness the economic potential of Americans age 50 and over, which happens to be one of the fastest growing population segments in American society today. So joining me now to help dive deeper into this fascinating conversation is Scott Frisch, the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for AARP. Scott, thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Chica. Thanks for having me on this conversation. Great. Let's get started. Longevity economy. What does that mean? And can you talk about some of the ways that uh, Americans age 50 and up are contributing to the American society? Sure. So let's let's start with the definition of the longevity economy. So in 2018, we commissioned a study that basically defines the longevity economy as the direct and indirect economic activity driven by the 50 plus cohort in this country. So in terms of dollars, that's $8.3 trillion. $8.3 trillion of direct and indirect economic activity driven by the 50 plus population in this country. So to put that in context, $8.3 trillion would be the third largest economy in the world if it was separated out uh, specifically in terms of GDP. So it's a rather large and significant piece of the economic engine of this country, and if not, quite frankly, the world. So to put this in perspective, there are roughly 117 million people, give or take, 
uh, a few on uh, that are 50 plus in this country. So that that cohort represents roughly a third, maybe a little bit less than a third of the U.S. population. And it's only expected to grow, I think, as you as you noted in your opening remarks, by 2030, that 117 million is expected to go to 132 million. And then by 2050, it's at 157.3 million people. So a very large and substantial part of the U.S. population and the U.S. economy. Thank you for those numbers. They really help to bring everything into perspective. Uh, let's talk about uh, caregiving. I understand that caregiving can actually be measured. So how is your organization measuring caregiving? Uh, great question. So we'll go back to the 8.3 trillion. That's direct and indirect. Uh, uh, then on top of that, there's about $750 billion of unpaid activities that the 50 plus population drive in this country. Within that $750 billion, roughly $470 million represent unpaid caregiving, um, unpaid caregiving compensation, to put it in simplest terms, um, as it relates to that 50 plus population. So when you think about caregivers, uh, you think about the toll that it takes on a family, whether you're paid or unpaid for that matter. And you know, I think we all know or have experienced ourselves the uh, the cost, both in hard dollars and soft dollars, of what it takes to care for somebody. And that cuts across the entire age segment. So although those numbers were specific to the to the 50 plus population, in reality, uh, those numbers are even bigger when you start to take into consideration the entire population spectrum from an age perspective. You have uh, younger people taking care of their parents, parents taking care, care of their grandparents, older adults taking care of one another. So, I mean, it's a it's a universal issue that we're all that we have or we will face at some point in our lives. So it is a tremendous cost to this economy and a cost to this country. About four hundred fifty billion dollars, a very large number, obviously. And there are certain lingering perspectives and uh, stereotypes about people over the age of 50. What would you like businesses and employers to know about this age segment? Uh, it's a great question. So a couple of points. One that people are living longer uh, and generally living healthier uh, lives as they age and the pandemic notwithstanding. So that's one point. The second point <clears throat> is that ageism is real um, and it still exists. And the, the concept of ageism, we just have to deal with um, in terms of we have to correct it, we have to eliminate it. Um, and the perceptions of ageism aren't necessarily, what, I'm sorry, the perceptions what, what of ageism uh, in getting older uh, years ago aren't reality, and we need to correct that. And then we also need to recognize that the 50 plus population, as I mentioned in that longevity economy comment, can drive a significant amount of economic activity. Businesses, marketers, they need to understand that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Scott, for helping us to better understand the longevity economy. Fascinating stuff indeed. Thank you once again. Thank you. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers from the Washington Post. My next guest is Dr. Louise Aronson. She's a geriatrician, an author, and a professor of medicine at UCSF. And Dr. Aronson, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. And I have a big question for you. Older Americans are a larger part than ever before of our working economy. What are the, some of the reasons behind that? Oh, there are so many, but I think part of it is that we're living longer, healthier lives. Really, if you look at the population trends over the last century, you see that people most of the world around are living literally decades longer. Uh, but there's also an important distinction between lifespan, which is the number of years you live, and health span, which is the number of years in which you are healthy. And the health span has also increased. Uh, medicine has a little bias towards keeping us alive rather than keeping us healthy. Um, so it's, our hope is that in coming decades, actually, the difference between the health span and lifespan will further shorten. But basically, we live decades longer. We are healthy for most of that time, at least the more fortunate among us. Um, and work is a critical way of being stimulated intellectually, physically, socially. Uh, although why people continue to work has to do with two different things. If you are a fortunate person, it's usually about what I just described, feeling purposeful. If you are a less fortunate person, it's because retirement appears to be somewhat of an epiphenomenon, or at least retirement benefits of the 20, 20th century. So many people have to keep working either to maintain a decently comfortable lifestyle or simply to survive. So what are some of the pros and cons of Americans working longer? Oh, well, the pros are very clearly that work is a, a huge way that we all get meaning out of life. You know, you get up in the morning, you know what to do and and you have people you interact with. I actually hear this more from older men than older women. But often when people retire, they realize just how much of how many of their social interactions had to do with workplace colleagues and friends. Um, and and how after a brief period of elation um, at not having to get up and do all those things, they really, really miss their work life. Um, so it's it's an absolute joy to to get up and be able to do something. We know that purpose correlates with health um, and with longevity. So these two things separately, people who have a reason to be, um, who do things for others, who are part of something, whether you're, you know, building something, selling something, uh, you know, seeing patients, whatever it is that you do, that makes a really big difference um, in other people's lives and for your own health uh, and well-being on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we're also seeing something pretty great, which is that as people live into those excess generations, they find huge sociocultural gaps in resources, activities, and opportunities. So there is a large and growing trend among older people to fill those gaps, because when younger people think mm -hmm. of making products or services for older people, they think about caregiving. And while those are absolutely essential, uh, they're often designed not necessarily with old people in mind so much as with a particular stereotype of older people in mind, nor do they necessarily imagine the ways in which services and opportunities might help people thrive, not just become, um, you know, have greater health or care needs as they age. 
So I want to ask you something that Mika raised in our last interview, and that is about uh, a woman in their 50s and the special contributions mm -hmm. and power, in fact, she was saying, they have at that age. Could you give us a little bit of the doctor's uh, viewpoint on that and what's happening with women in their 50s? Right. Well, I agree with Mika in many ways. That, And part of it may have to do also um, with the flip side of ageism. Ageism kicks in younger uh, for women than for men in general. Um, and partly because our value traditionally has to do with how we look more than it does for males. Um, again, as a sweeping generalization, because we also know better looking people tend to have more advantages than less good looking people. Um, and I think there's a liberation with that. Uh, you can see people think, well, I still want to look attractive and I want to look good, but it's not even how I'm defining myself to that degree. Uh, there are also differences in priorities. Uh, so as you reach what is clearly the second half of your life, and one could argue that, you know, there are some people and in fact, growing numbers living into their hundreds, but for most of us, over 50 is the second half of our lives. So you realize that your life too is limited. There, there is this phenomenon in youth where people imagine that old age doesn't have much to do with them. It's about their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents. And as we reach 50, we realize, oh, this has to do with me too. And that means there is a bit of a ticking clock and that helps people prioritize more effectively. I think some of the, the changes that come with menopause also make a difference, both psychologically and physiologically. Um, there's, there's a sort of um, pleasant uh, steadiness to days, um, a lack of worry about certain things like becoming pregnant. Um, there is also uh, knowing that you have raised your children in most cases. Um, and settling into your own body with a comfort that may not have existed previously. These things correlate really well with uh, happiness and success at older ages. Actually, um, across genders, that's true. Mm -hmm. If you look at what's known as the U-shaped curve of happiness, um, people are fairly happy in youth through age 25 or 30, then there is a real nadir, you know, a low point that can last for a few decades. But around age 60, happiness goes up, life satisfaction goes up, and anxiety goes down. I'm not sure how much this is physiologic, uh, with the possible exception of menopause for women, as much as it is a life stage transformation. Um, as your horizons look different, your opportunities look different, and your ability to prioritize gets better. You know who you are. You know there, there are those things in youth that people think, oh, I'll get better at that or I'll address that. And some of them you do and others you don't. And people just settle into themselves with a greater comfort and confidence about what matters to them and how they want to use their precious time. So this is fascinating on an individual level. And then I sort of think on the cultural level. And at the moment, we have the oldest US president ever. We have Nancy Pelosi in her 80s as the Speaker of the House. Where are we going culturally on this issue of ageism? What's the evolution and how optimistic are you that we're moving ahead of these very old sort of fashioned ideas of people being, you know, useless after the age of, I'm not going, I'm not going to put a number on it, but... Uh, <laughs> in the second half of our lives. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, e the economic discrimination policy begins at the ripe old age of 40, which is, you know, 
exceedingly appalling, particularly if you're over 40, I suppose. But anyway, um, you know, I think that um, Nancy Pelosi, President Biden, um, a variety of others are really showing the great potential of old age. Uh, I have a slide in one of my talks on elderhood where I show some of our leaders, all of whom are in uh, what is clearly elderhood, the, the third major life phase uh, after childhood and adulthood. I think we have to recognize a few things. One is that those leaders, almost without exception, have one thing in common. They are all white-skinned Americans. Um, a majority of them are male. So opportunities do accrue differently to people in this country based on their demographic characteristics. Uh, so as we confront ageism, a critical thing to confront is that people in certain backgrounds, people in certain parts of the country have greater opportunities opportunities to accrue to the longevity dividend, to be healthy and happy and still working at their chosen profession as they grow older. Um, this also correlates with educational opportunities, because with more educational opportunities, your work is more likely to be something that requires your brain and not your body or some sort of very quick physical speed. Uh, I also think that part of how we deal with ageism is really based on past generations. And one of my hopes is that as we move forward, we recognize the degree to which a particular generation plays a key role in shaping our notions of old age. I think too often we conflate age with generational experience. And so if you think of the generations prior to the baby boomers, the great generation, the silent generation, um, these were people who didn't live as long, who had much less education, for whom cultural references came from a time where almost nobody lived to those ages or, or a tiny minority of people. And so you retired, you settled down. Most women um, hadn't worked in the first place um, or who, who had done basic labor. Now we have something really different. Um, we have the baby boomers. They are much more vocal. They were vocal in the 60s and they are vocal again now. And I think that's going to shape how we respond to aging and ageism. And we should realize too that they are not the standard. You know, there's this notion of, oh, people uh, maybe weren't digital natives. Well, then come the millennials, and that is an even bigger generation than the boomers and has a completely different values yet again. So part of dealing with age is recognizing um, two key things. One is that it's shaped a lot by generational experience, and that is changing much more rapidly in the current era than it did in past centuries. Um, and the second is that old age is decades long and no less diverse than childhood. We know instinctively, you know, that infants and teens are very different. Well, so too is a, you know, unhealthy 62-year-old and a healthy 92-year-old, or you can flip it the other way around. The other curiosity of old age is that the stages um, vary as much by function and health as they do by decade alone. So as we talk, we're celebrating this potential for Americans to work longer, but what's the balance here? Is there a problem sometimes? And how do you generate a, an efficient workforce that, that keeps the value of the older people, but also brings along younger people? Where, how do we create the right sort of balance between these two tensions? 
Ooh, that's such a good question. I love that question. And I'm not sure we have all the right answers yet, but that's partly because people haven't been asking that question and it is absolutely the right question. Also because skills will change as generations move forward. Um, so how do we think about uh, opportunities that make the most of the ways in which we are all maybe faster at age 20 um, and have better, more measured, more likely to be accurate, according to the data judgment, um, in our 60s and 70s? Um, is there a way that we do different tasks? That actually makes work much mm -hmm. more interesting if you can both um, excel and um, adapt and learn new things as you move to get older. So I really think it's about considering strengths not based on individuals um, entirely, but partly based on things that we know we're gonna be better at, such as perhaps being really fast in youth versus um, being uh, more thoughtful or more articulate as we get older. Thinking about that, I also think an important part will be to consider um, numbers of hours worked. Many people want to retire because they're exhausted or because it takes more time to maintain your body. Um, and so will there be opportunities for people to work different amounts in different life phases? Maybe you work a ton when you're really young, when your kids are young and you need more time at home or you're balancing kids and um, ill other relatives, you work a little less. Then in middle age, you work more again. Then in old age, you work a little less or whatever suits you and your particular lifestyle and family, but having more flexibility. I'm actually hoping the pandemic will enable those sort of creative strategies um, and, and that all of us, the generations will work together to develop these strategies uh, that suit people of particular generational experiences and values, but also people of different ages. So I really do want to ask you about the pandemic. We know how it has affected women disproportionately and people from lower socioeconomic um, parts of the culture. Um, but you've also written that ageism has made the pandemic worse. Could you explain that to us? Uh, well, our country um, and most city and state responses have been unabashedly ageist. Now, right. <laughs> if you look at pandemic response, it had a variety of components. Um, part of it was uh, providing proper PPE. This was provided to hospitals preferentially, but not to long-term care facilities or day programs for the most vulnerable people among us. And let's be clear that we knew older adults were going to be much more vulnerable before the pandemic hit the United States. There was no reason to think that old people in China, Spain, or Italy were going to be more vulnerable than people in the United States. And then the first outbreak was in a skilled nursing facility. And what did we do? We did not provide PPE to those facilities. It also means that what has happened to people of color in this country and what has happened to the very oldest and frailest among us um, has run in parallel because those poor people, often people of color, work in the facilities. Um, they were the essential workers, right, who never, who didn't get PPE for the better part of a year. Testing then was a way to prevent outbreaks. Testing was also not provided um, to places where you had poor people or the oldest old. 
um, treatment decisions. Healthcare systems are set up for two flavors of people according to age. There are children and adults. Even a child knows an 88-year-old, a 48-year-old, and an 88-year-old are different physiologically and socially. Yet we have we continue to have algorithms for children and adults, but despite an extensive literature on different presentations and different needs of older adults, the healthcare system still doesn't acknowledge that, including the CDC, which has very few pages for old people. Right. One of the, the terms, one of the words that keeps coming up throughout the pandemic is flexibility, flexible working. People want hybrid working or not to go into their offices again. But how can this uh, be used to tap into this large growing workforce you're talking about, older Americans? Uh, well, I think older Americans have accrued to technology in unprecedented numbers. There were many who already did. So when you look at elder technology in Silicon Valley is very big on trying to find really creative ways of providing technology for older people, but that usually has to do with caregiving rather than enabling. So literally the strategy is to make people dependent rather than to help them realize their independence far too often. Uh, but, but in a survey of most useful technology, smartphones were found to be the single most useful technology for older people, just like for the rest of us. Um, so what di what we did see was that many people who had thought, oh, I don't know how to, I don't need to know how to do this, or I'm not going to use it, uh, learned how to use technology or learned how to use it in different ways. Um, there has always been a decrease in technology use um, by age group. This will will eventually not be the case because now we have digital natives among us, um, and the rest of us all had to convert. Um, so now it's more of a problem in rural communities or very poor people or people who are ancient or who have some degree of cognitive impairment. But it has been a huge opportunity for elders of all stripes otherwise. We're going to have to finish, but I want to slip in one last question, which has a yes or no answer. Um, how okay. optimistic are you that we are changing people's view on or are you optimistic that we're changing people's view on aging in a way that will allow us to harness um, this, these great productive years that people are facing in their older age. Are you we are absolutely making change and ageism is still doing altogether too well. I cheated. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. We'll take those messages and make our own efforts to overcome the, the bad parts of ageism. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.